Welcome to the herd and thanks for listening. If you enjoy this sodcast, please like it, share it, give it a good rating and follow and help more people find their way into the Ruminati herd. If you have suggestions for improvements, please let me know. Howdy, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Meet Your Herdmates Sodcast. Uh, I am very pleased to be joined today. Dr. Joe Bouton, welcome. Thank you, Peter. Glad to be here. Um, yeah, glad to be anywhere these days. Um, exactly. <laughs> Although you're 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 back in Athens, not like it's a recent thing, but you we first met when you were in Athens, and then you moved away and did some other things and came back. And I've only occasionally gotten back to Athens since then. And the first time I visited, they had taken the road out in front of the Miller Plant Sciences Building. It was gone, and the greenhouses up above and everything. <laughs> I'm lost, but you don't do that. And they, you know, even worse for people on campus, they took away about 50, 60 parking places. <laughs> so that was really bad. More than yeah. that, maybe 100 parking places. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's, I guess that's progress. I guess so, it is. <laughs> uh, for, for people from the, not from the forage side of the Ruminati herd, uh, Dr. Bouton has been a forage breeder who contributed with what 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 does it say on your on your bio how many uh, 27 forage and bioenergy cultivars and 11 cultivars currently in commercial production what's a cultivar well it's a, it's a variety it's just a cultivated variety you know, so an, an old botanical variety is really an old botanical term. You know, it just meant, uh, you know, something you'd bring out of nature and just start propagating it and using it. Where a cultivated variety was improved, usually improved uh, through well, the way breeders look at it. It's improved through genetic means or whatever. It added traits to it. And then it's cultivated, you know, mm -hmm. actually grown uh, through seed or propagation through vegetative means. Yeah. So would an ecotype versus a cultivar, is that a accurate? I think an ecotype is, uh, to me, is is something right out of nature, or, you know, it's it's maybe been exposed to natural selection, but uh, not not artificial selection. Yeah. So there are uh, germplasm repositories that would have accessions, and those would be ecotypes, and and so a lot of these terms could be interchangeable, you know, but, but for, for me as a plant breeder, if I could collect you know, a, a certain forage species in, in nature, and it's just out there, you know, in a pasture or in a fence row or wherever, and I take that plant out, it's an ecotype to me. It's, it's, it's the type to that in ecology, to, that, to that, that environment that it's sitting in right there. Well, fair enough. Already I've jumped way ahead. So and there you go. There you if, go. And I probably uh, gave you the old professorial <laughs> run around on that too. Well, thank you, Mr. Chips. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I got a great um, story on Mr. Chips. Uh, yeah. My grandparents were, were uh, you know, they were just old farmers. Uh, and, my, and when I told them I was going to be a professor at the university, the only, the only concept they had of a professor was Mr. Chips. So as far as they were concerned, I, I walked around with a robe and mortar. <laughs> <laughs> and I tried to explain to them about, 
agriculture research, and there was actually a big experiment station at Stoneville, Mississippi, that they knew about. And, you know, they do research, and they, they kind of got that concept. But finally, I just told them, yeah, that's what I do. I walk around with a robe and a motorboard. And they were happy, <laughs> and yes. everybody was happy. <laughs> yeah. So if if you and Mary Jean got to go to dinner parties, remember when we did that? Um, right. And somebody didn't know who Joe Bowton was, how briefly would you introduce yourself? Well, there were two. There are two ways I I would introduce myself. Uh, if I use my wife's introduction, you know, somebody ask her what your husband does, she'd say he's a grass man. Now that would leave wide open. With with old hippies, that would leave wide open a lot of things. Uh, and my daughter, when she was little, she told somebody, somebody asked her what I did. And she said, he's a doctor, but he can't help you. <laughs> so <laughs> so I'm, I'm a grass man. I'm a doctoral grass man who can't help you. <laughs> yeah. Fair so, enough. But, but really, it's uh, the simplest thing is to just tell them, I, you know, I work with grasses and legumes and you know i and or simply just say i work to feed animals you know in pasture situations yeah hay in pasture and stuff like that they seem to grasp that fairly i mean they have a general concept of it mm. Mm. well i think it's fair to say that you know you did all right for a boy from washington county right mississippi uh, yeah there's a there's a there's a great song, uh, kind of an old country, not country, but it comes out of the North Carolina mountains, and it was about Jing uh, uh, Sig Sullivan was the name of the song, and this oh. guy collected ginseng, mm -hmm. and and uh, it, but he was from the Mississippi Delta like I was, and and the song lyrics, the main lyrics say it's a long way from the North Georgia mountains to the Mississippi Delta. Yes, <laughs> that yes. muddy water Mississippi Delta. Yeah, so. Uh, yeah, that's so. That's pretty much that song. Pretty so says it all. Yeah, mm -hmm. a long uh, way. Well, congratulations, and also um, the the opportunities that were available. Um, yeah, true. And and I think at one point you, your your father said something about I don't plan to come back. It, it, yeah. Well, you know, it, there's a lot of serendipity in life, and and, and luck you know, in chance. And and when I was finishing at Mississippi State in my bachelor's degree and about to get married, uh, my my father, uh, well, the, 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 the chance event was cotton was 18, 22 cents a pound, somewhere in that range. Well, he just told me, look, at that price, don't think about coming back and farming cotton. He said, I, I can barely keep my head above water with my five or 600 acres here, and I, I can't be sharing it with another family, you know, so you need to do something different. And it was just another chance event that my main advisor at Mississippi State was a guy named Coleman Ward, who Coleman uh, was big. He had studied under War Roy Blazer, and he, he was running the turf and forage plots, and, you know, he... Uh, I started, I had worked for him as a student worker and, you know, and I told him I was interested in breeding for many reasons, going back even into my time in, at the Stoneville Experiment Station in, in Washington County and worked for a cotton breeder. And I thought that was, and I, you know, I thought that was great. And, and I had taken genetics at Mississippi State under a really dynamic guy and I really liked it. So I just decided that I would go to graduate school and breeding, forage breeding. It just, <laughs> those, I mean, it's just 
out of the blue. I mean, it's. I think people have probably moved down career paths for sillier reasons, but that that just seemed that was just kind of like you know what's in a twenty-two year old's mind. Well, I was I like breeding. I work for a forage guy. I think I'll just go into forage and turf breeding. Yeah. So so that would be in the seventies. Yeah, early seventies, around nineteen seventy, seventy-one, seventy-two. Okay, and. Um, so there, there's a thought that I have of, of referring to you as the, you know, the Gregor Mendel of forages, but that's perhaps a bit over the top. Yeah. Well, especially on impact, <laughs> especially on impact factor. I mean, I might have a, you know, a few hundred publications, but he only had one and this impact factor dwarfs all a hundred put together. <laughs> But if anybody knows anything about plant breeding, maybe they know that and, you know, they think of flowers and being able to, but, um, you know, grasses don't have a flower like no, that's peas. True. That's true. Yeah. And, and, but yet grasses are this very old family that is of immense importance to humanity. Um, from the use of structure, you can bamboo is a grass, and exactly we, people have used bamboo for centuries for building, and obviously the cereal crops are grasses primarily. Well, I, I think exclusively in the technical definition, they are. Yeah, they're definitely grasses. Yeah. Um, and then there's the forage grasses as well, and then more recently the biofuel potential right. um, as well. Um, so if we think about a monk crossing, um, you know, peas in a garden, it's not quite so simple when you breed grasses. That's that's exactly right. It's, it's especially the self-pollinated grasses. We are very fortunate in the forages, though, is that most of our important perennial grasses are outcrossers. So in, in many cases, so self-incompatible that you can just make crosses by mutual pollinations. You know, in fact, all the work done by Glenn Burton, he was just I mean, this is a famous thing that he he produced a lot of his varieties by putting the seed heads in a Coke bottle <laughs> with water. <laughs> Maybe a little bit of stolen with them, you know, and just stick them in a, in a Coke bottle and let them pollinate each other and get the seed off. He only needed seed with vegetative propagation. He only needed one plant, you know. So, so you know, you take advantage of what God gives you, you know, and uh, and and uh, and so and so we were we're fortunate. The most important ones uh, are you know, perennials, anyhow. It's when you move into the annuals, a lot of times you get into self, and the cereals are notorious for that. You know, mm -hmm. you know, they have to be, you actually have to be emasculate and pollinate. But thank goodness the cereals flowers get a little bigger than these perennial grasses. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. And also, though, with perennials, it's not quite as rapid a turnover. And then That's the right. use, the use of it requires some additional evaluation as well. Exactly. So you can, you can use mating designs on perennials is what I'm saying that don't require, you know, uh, making crosses, uh, artificial crosses. They're, they'll cross naturally and, and produce 
such a small frequency of cells that you get a lot of outcrossing and then you just start selecting from there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you can create a lot of diversity just from outcrossing. But then you want to kind of get that population that results somewhat uniform. Exactly. Well, uniformity, you know, getting uniformity in all crops has been what plant breeders have always done, getting to some level of uniformity, definitely with the traits, but also with maturity. You know, you think of the cereals, if you didn't have them all ripen at the same time, you'd be in a heck of a, a mess, you know. So maturity is probably one of the first things ever done in the cereals was, was getting them all uniform. You know, mm -hmm. so uniformity is important, and we use uniformity, as you know, in uh, with in your with your company that uh, you know you've got to get through the uh, uh, you know the certification process. Uh, everything that describes your variety has got to be uni fairly uniform. You know? And variety registration and protection, yeah, registration, certification, mm -hmm. even patenting. You know, so mm -hmm. it becomes very important. Yeah, if you have a seed field and you're trying to say, yeah, this is, and yet you've got this obvious for, you know, variety 50, of heights and types. 50% off types is not good. <laughs> oh, is that is that too much? Is that? <laughs> that might be a, a tad too much. <laughs> yeah. Um, so... One of the one of the thoughts I hear people entertaining, and uh, for whatever reason, is, well, we should just use whatever naturally occurs, and that would be best. Yeah. Um, so, what would be your counter or suggestion for that kind of a of a thought? Well, uh, I always try to get a story that goes with it. Um, I remember hearing a story about a farmer who had a beautiful operation and had been, you know, had had worked like a slave to get it that way for 30, 40 years, you know. And his preacher came for lunch one day and he was admiring, he was taking him around, he was admiring his operation and and he just said, oh, the good Lord has really blessed you and helped you get this farm. He said, yeah, but you should have seen it when the good Lord had it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh yeah you know i'm i'm not quite sure i've been trying to read more about what's going on recently you know uh, with uh, regenerative ag and stuff like that but i'm i'm afraid i i'm from the old school so it's 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 hard for me to get my arms around exactly what they want to do and maybe i'm misinterpreting what they want to do but it seems like it's based heavily on low inputs if no inputs and uh, and 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 using more what's out there, you know, polycultures that are natural out there. So I, I'm not sure. That kind of goes, you know, maybe it's my training and maybe my bias now. But uh, after well, sixty or seventy years, yeah, you yeah. know that uh, you know it's it, it's uh, inputs are good. <laughs> you know, so that's a, yeah. <laughs> so long as there's a return, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, exactly. and and you know, show me a man without a point of view, and I'll show you a corpse. Is one of my lines. Um, <laughs> that's exactly. That's a good one. Yeah, I remember um, that. But what of uh, certainly in the you know eat more eastern, more higher rainfall portion of the United States? Yes. How, how many of the important forage species are native to that part of North America? Virtually none. 
I mean, you can if you if you start counting the grasses like switchgrass, Indian grass, big blue stem, little blue stem. You know, well, that's they're there, but you know, as far as grasses that are planted and are in very intensive production systems, it's virtually none. You know, it it really is. I mean, um, I don't know if I never have figured out, even though I've released a, as you know, a crabgrass variety. <laughs> you know, I just never never got my hands around it. If this was native or was it? I think it's an African grass, but uh, anyhow, yeah, it's very few. Yeah, things well, that we think keep... are, were weeds at one time and now are grasses. Yeah, you know. Well, that's a whole other people. story for forages, right? <laughs> yeah, it really is. It really is. It's fascinating, actually. Yeah. Is is Johnson grass a native? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, kudzu uh, surely isn't. Um, it's not. I think Johnson grass is is a sorghum, you know. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't think it's native. Kentucky bluegrass isn't a native. I, um, I heard it. You know, I used to think it was, but uh, I, I believe you're right. I, I don't believe there's a lot of native grasses except some of the range grasses that I've mentioned, and 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 the eastern half of the United States was so wooded. You know, you're talking about these little species that just hug the the areas that were just burnt off by fire or whatever, you know, for whatever reason. Yeah. Right. Um, so, so I think that many times people have an image of natural, but their time scale isn't long enough to realize okay. that these things have been introduced. There was an ecosystem prior to European settlement. Um, and, and that, ought to inform the conversations. Um, and, and too frequently, I think it doesn't just simply because of a lack of awareness. Um, yeah. But, you know, I understand when you go, because, and that was a, a great learning experience for me when I was out in Oklahoma, is, uh, is, is when you get out into the Great Plains, well, the natives make up a bigger part of what people do and what they, what they use. And and uh, become very important, and maybe that's the story now that uh, they're emphasizing that more and more. And I, I understand it, uh, but uh, I'm just not sure. I, it's like everything else. When people, you know, make it a faith-based thing, it it becomes a little, little hard for me to get my arms around it. Somehow. Well, but even even there, you could still make the case for using introduced species in portions of their system. So we could talk about alfalfa grazing as part of the base that maybe has half or so of native warm seasons, but they're not going to produce in the wind, you know, in the spring or the fall or at times when you need to be resting them. Um, so the big argument we had at at Noble, when I was there, I don't, I doubt if they have it today. But, but it, you know, with the with the range guys was uh, regenerate, you know, putting putting replanting some of the natives. So whether it was switchgrass or Indian grass or big blue stem, uh, wouldn't it be better to have one that establishes easier and better? You know, you you've bred it to be to be more tolerant of tough conditions to establish because one of the problems with those grasses was establishment. I mean, it could take a couple of years to get, to get it where it's contributing, you know? So, so is that wrong or right? You know? And, and uh, yeah. So, 
you're using a native grass, you're just using a different genetic version of it. Well, and so back to the the issue of inputs, and I um, remember you talking about how certainly back in the 70s and as you were forming your breeding program, your research program, um, what you didn't, the bottlenecks, filling the bottlenecks, I think was your phrase. And um, you were coming on at the tail end of when the forage system was grass and nitrogen fertilizer. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, you know, so I took my first courses in the late 60s and, and through the 70s, it was just nickel a pound nitrogen and <laughs> Well, it wasn't quite that expensive. I mean, quite that cheap, and by then, but but back in the fifties, I mean, I had many a talk with Glenn Burton, and 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 uh, you know, he the interesting thing about Glenn Burton, who was the foremost grass breeder in the country uh, for many years, is is that he he started off working on alfalfa. He got his PhD at Rutgers, working on alfalfa. In fact, the variety Atlantic came out of a lot of the lines that were in his PhD thesis. So. He had a kind of special place in his heart, but but you know, I asked him how come he didn't continue to work on alfalfa, and he said Bermuda grass was just tough as nails, and 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 nitrogen was a nickel a pound. So you throw those two things together, <laughs> persistence, high yield with with cheap nitrogen, and man, you could run a lot of cows, you know. And and so production, we we were focused pretty heavily on production, maybe more too much, but that's the way we were raised, you know. So production. Is is a, is a, is the ultimate issue uh, because it goes to the it it it's affects so much of the economics of, of of you know for the average producer. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that it's it's a be all where all, all you know, but it is it it is very important. I think even today. Yeah. So, for those who haven't been tracking nitrogen price lately, um, it's. <laughs> What eight times that now, or yeah, surely at least eight times. Uh, in fact, I remember back in you know there was a there was a uh, big problem in two thousand six, two thousand eight. We went to a dollar a pound for a short period of time. It was yeah, it zoomed up there. You know, it, so it's farming. tied. It's tied to energy. You know, it's tied yeah. to energy prices. So, and when natural gas got cheap again, it got cheap. <laughs> <laughs> got cheaper. It never got back to a nickel. <laughs> so, so as I'm recalling your um, when you were talking about filling the bottlenecks, um, that led you to look at grazing type alfalfas, white clover improvement, and looking to fix a problem with the only cool season grass that you had in Georgia, which was tall fescue. So. What is it about now? Uh, help me out. Alfalfa originates from the um, Mesopotamian region. It does. Yeah. So I'm not. I'm not. I'm not familiar with all the archaeology from there. But the ancient haybines. What were they like there? That. <laughs> well, uh, you know, there's there's stories uh, of of the Romans and the Greeks even as far back there is carrying it cut and dried, you know, you know, with their horses to feed their, feed their horses, you know, and their war horses, you know, and uh, so 
it was a cut and carry system to them, I think, you know, uh, it was so much a grazing system. They didn't go to plant it. They actually brought it with them, I think, and maybe planted it when they settled. But uh, yeah, it goes way back. I mean, you know, you can you can see a quote from from different Roman, you know. And I, I love the one from uh, I forgot the guy's name now, but uh, I use it some. You know, it's just if you want more milk, it, he just says if you want more milk, bring lucerne to the stalls. <laughs> mm. It doesn't get more clear than that. <laughs> Well, if and, you and, feed them, if you feed them lucerne or alfalfa, they're gonna squirt some milk. <laughs> so yeah. they knew that as far back as uh, as, as the ancient Romans. Yeah, uh, a, a conversation with a gentleman who's doing research uh, aimed at the low and middle income countries across Africa and into Southwest uh, Asia, and again, the cut and carry is what they practice in part to protect the livestock from everything that's out there. Um, so it, 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 just because it comes from back then doesn't mean it couldn't have been a, a hay crop and there couldn't have been some influence on its development. But certainly in this country, alfalfa hasn't typically been looked at as a grazing crop. Right. And, and you know, really backtracking a little bit, you know, like I said, I, I take great pride in, either my wife introduced me or I introduced myself as a grass man. So I realized the importance, especially in the Eastern half of the United States of, of three major grass, perennial grass species, uh, tall fescue, Bermuda grass and Bahia grass. I mean, they cover a lot of the landscape, you know, especially in the forage and pasture area. So I knew these would be the base of operation and that if you want, but they have problems. And that, and that was those problems we tried to attack. So we weren't trying to replace that base, except in the case of tall fescue. We just knew we had to do something about those toxins and maybe replacement was the only thing you really could do that was effective. I mean, we try other things and, and we still do, but, but I still believe that it's almost like a, a medical approach. You know, if you can remove a problem without detrimental <laughs> effects, you know, you should remove the problem, you know, so... Mm -hmm. Um, so that's, you know, so when we got in, we started looking, what are these, what are the main problems of these grass systems? Well, the tall fescue was obvious, but for Bermuda grass and Bahia grass, especially, and even tall fescue at some times of year have an off season. And, and also their nutritional value on a straight nutrition standpoint, well, they're a little low in protein for sure. They can be low and especially the way we manage them, they can be extremely low in, in digestible energy and protein. So we tried to pick species that would contribute and the legumes are important. So we picked alfalfa and we picked white clover, somewhat red clover. And, and also as you know, uh, the annuals too became important. Uh, I was mostly a perennial man my whole career, except when I was out at Noble. And I have to admit, we started working on crab grasses and, <laughs> and cereals and, you know, so, but, but it's all to build off this base. That, that was the whole thing. You're building off, a very persistent and dependable base. And those that's huge, you know, it's just, you got to plug in where the problems are. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, okay. Now you and I ha have been, been familiar with the problem with tall fescue, but I don't know that everyone within the audience is going to be familiar with 
what the problem is. And I think there's a great story there, um, not the least of which is the number of graduate programs that were around nitrogen timing on, you know, managing tall fescue before we, we understood what was going on. So let's just kind of briefly go over the endophyte tall fescue story. Well, it's, you know, really, it's a fascinating story. If it didn't have such big impact, it would be a fascinating example of what the mycologists would call mutualism. So you have two organisms, one lives inside the other one, and they both benefit each other. Of course, the, the plant provides a home, and the endophyte, or it's an endophytic fungus, is what it, what it is. You know, uh, by performing various duties <laughs> for the plant, produces a series of alkaloids that vary in any way from maybe protection, you know, to there's some growth hormones going on too that gives it more tillering ability. I mean, it's a, it's a laundry list of things, but the, the one that stands out is the ergot alkaloids that give all kinds of animal problems. And, um, you know, about the time I was doing this work too, there was a lady who came from uh, somewhere in the Ivy Leagues. Uh, I got her book too, and I hadn't looked at it recently, but it's called Poisons of the Past. And her whole thesis was that these, these, these type of mycotoxins, whether it's alpha toxins or whether it's ergots, have, have dictated human history. And she's got some fascinating, you know, indirect stories about, <laughs> I mean, like in the French Revolution where they ate rye, which is, can be ergotized, the, the guillotine was running around the clock during the revolution. <laughs> but on the coast where they ate wheat, nobody was ever executed because they weren't hepped up on the LSD compounds that were coming out. So, but, but you know, uh, getting back to the, to the main story with fescue, they, it was great that it provided protection and performance of the variety. In fact, what it made to me, I use the term, and ecologists don't like it, but I think it was more ecologically fit because of all these things it did. It, it had a fitness in nature, but part of that fitness was anti-beverage. It... <laughs> It used toxins to keep animals from eating it too. So it's, um, it, you know, it, it it just provided or it, it, it resulted in, uh, especially the way the fescue story went, you, you took this crop that that was so persistent, they didn't know much about it, but they planted it over millions of acres in no time flat. I mean, you know, considering... Uh, you know, 20 years or so is not a long time to almost get 40 million acres of a crop. I mean, that's unbelievable, especially not an annual crop, you know, so. Uh, one variety. One and one variety. It just so happened the variety was toxic. So I remember uh, Warren Thompson used to talk about, he called fescue, he said, really what fescue was in the early days, and Warren lived through those days. So it was interesting to be talking to somebody that actually lived through it. He said uh, it was a gully stopper. People forget that how erosive all that land in those high rainfall areas that they had taken, you know, the cover off the trees and and even some of the forage and and uh, or the or the crop or the plants, I should say, and 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 just they started washing away when they were trying to grow tobacco and cotton and all this other stuff, and uh, so 
Feshke was so persistent, and especially Kentucky 31 tall Feshke. And that's a story all into itself. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a book out now called The Wondergrass. I don't yes, know. Yeah, I, I'll make a plug for my good old buddy Don Ball there. That's that. That's a fascinating book. And 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 if anybody really wants to, you know, the, the whole history of Kentucky 31, especially tall fescue in the United States, that's a great, it's a great book. It's a great reference. But, you know, essentially they covered up 40 million acres. It did what it was supposed to do. It covered the land, prevented erosion. But what do you do with land that's covered with grass? <laughs> well, Eureka, you graze livestock on it, you know, and, and then the problems started cropping up, you know. So the, the plant was doing what it was designed to do. We just were trying to use it differently. And so, you know, the all the research was focused on what was the problem. We went through many dead ends, you know, in cul-de-sacs, you know, about what was the problem. And, and basically it all boiled down to, it's the ergot alkaloid, stupid. You know, well, you could keep well, keep the ergots out. <laughs> you you you'll probably it won't totally do it, but it'll it'll mostly do it. You know, yeah, so I, uh, your your comment earlier about serendipity, because as I'm recalling, um, I re, I remember um, Dr. Hovland coming to University of Georgia. That was towards oh, yeah. the end of my time there, yeah. and um, talking about a, a study where because they hadn't had the the drill calibrated properly. They ended up using some old seed to plant one rep. And and that led them then to look into what this was. Um, and, And I think the thing that most of the audience might really enjoy is it was a very logical progression of thought. First of all, here's a grass that's growing well. Let's develop it as a variety. Look, it's growing really well. They didn't have the ability to know why at that point, you know, in the 30s and 40s. That required some additional technology. And like you say, 40 million acres later, um, how do we manage this grass so that our cattle perform better? And why is the feed value better than the animal performance indicates? And and then we find out, oh, look, there's this fungus that's in these plants and the animals do poorly. And when it's not in, they don't do, they, they, they do better. What's the logical conclusion? Well, we get rid of the fungus. And then what happened? <laughs> it didn't hold up quite as well. In in many situations, unfortunately, yeah, it, it, you know, well managed and stuff like that, it, in 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 good soils, it would do okay. But you know, you mentioned Hublin, you know, it it also, you know, for me personally, that whole time was a series of serendipity events from for me personally. So here I came, 1977. I started at the University of Georgia. Uh, there's a guy named Luttrell, Professor Luttrell, who is two doors down from me. In the world of mycology, he is a top guy internationally. And who is this student, his his student who's working at USDA now? Charles Bacon. So Bacon, I get introduced to Bacon. I also collect a bunch of fescues from South Georgia, and they are persistent. But if I take the endophyte out, because I talked to Bacon, so we we were going through that whole era, take the endophyte out. Here comes Hovland, you know, at the university about the same time. 
it's showing it's showing that uh, you know that if you the animal performance is definitely tied to removing the endophyte or at least removing the toxins. And so we removed the endophyte and it collapsed because we had the stress. We were at the cutting, you know, you look at the North Georgia, South Georgia, you, you, you could just, you get, a, you get a pretty quick test of persistence by putting them in these very transitional zones, you know? And so, and then the big thing for me though, was going to France, the International Grassland Congress in 1989, and I'm going around seeing, there was the early days of posters. And a guy's giving a poster named Gary Latch from AgriSearch. Well, he's at, it was at AgriSearch, it was a DSIR in those days. But but on, on non-toxic endophytes in perennial ryegrass. Mm. So the urban legend now, it's in the book, it's almost an urban legend. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, is, is a, uh, I, and I'm talking to him and I tell him, and I show him some pictures I brought with me of, you know, how dramatic the, the, the death rate was on, on fungus-free versions of the same genetic material. And uh, he, I asked him, I just asked him a blunt question. Do you have Tolfescue endophytes that do this? He said, yes, I do. <laughs> it started from there. Mm-hmm. Next thing you know, you know, we're doing stuff and I get down to New Zealand on a sabbatical and we put we put a lot of strains and a lot of those agri-search strains into our into our material and mainly our Jessup cultivar. And, you know, you do a lot of animal testing and a lot of safety trials and a lot of agronomic trials. And and basically, you know, what we were trying to do was on the simplistic part was solve the horns of a dilemma. On one horn, uh, one part of the dilemma is that you wanted the persistence and performance of the agronomic performance of that grass. On the other one, you did not want the toxins. You did not want the animal health problems that came with it. So we wanted to keep one and reduce or eliminate the other. And so by taking the right strain and matching it up, thank God, too, we were so lucky that this wasn't judged to be a genetically engineered approach because these are naturally occurring strains it was almost analogous to putting rhizobium on you know com- commercial rhizobium on on a legume seed you know so it was the regulators just you know just didn't have a problem with it mm. so mm. that was huge yeah. looking back now on, on the whole biotech approach to breeding that that became a huge issue because, you know, if you think about it, and that's the way I've always told everybody, this is the closest thing that a breeder gets to a super gene. Putting this organism in the plant is the closest thing they will get to having one gene that does a lot of things. Hmm. Uh, and and not, and of course, takes away a lot. So you're, you're keeping the good things. You're, you're keeping, so it does a lot of things on persistence and growth and Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera, and even insect deterrence, and but at the same time, if you can target that one problem and get rid of it, now you've got you've got closest thing to a super gene, mm. really. Yeah. And I think I've heard that in New Zealand today, again, they had to for a while they had to put up with the animal disorder in order to have persistence in perennial ryegrass, which was their base grass. Yes. But 
as soon now that they have the non-toxic endophyte option, um, it's essentially looked at as a issue of animal welfare that there's yeah. no excuse for not using. It, it it can. We haven't quite gotten there, as you know, in this country, uh, and and I know a lot of producers are glad of that. I I just know that. Uh, you know, when we do these trials, and I've done a lot of them, you, you, when you get the point of comparison, you know, it's always the point of comparison for anything. <laughs> Doesn't matter if it's science or if it's a social issue. You've got to compare it to something. Mm-hmm. And, and that, when you see those animals with just a polywire fence separating them and they're on toxic forage versus them, you realize then how much there can be suffering on certain days, you know, and so... Mm-hmm. It it is it. If anybody gets out there, I remember my wife getting back to my wife. She she, she would come to me. She'd go with me sometimes. We were heading toward South Georgia somewhere, and I'd pull into the, one of the stations there where we had some lamb trials going on. And she saw those poor lambs that were on the toxic, and and they you know they they would be on forty million acres of the same stuff. You know, it was everywhere, and and she just said, "Man, you better be glad the ASPCA." Is not is not here, you know, and uh, and of course I'm trying to explain to her in in this type of science, you know, we we definitely not, you know, you know, it's a control group, so we we we've got to use them, but we're not going to let them die. You know? yeah. That's uh, but it is. It's it was pretty enlightening to see that and and very dramatic, and so yeah, it it is. It it can become an animal health issue quickly if people observe it. If they just observe it, it's it's amazing. Uh, I know when people see uh, my wife again, when we were on a tour in New Zealand and, and she got to see ryegrass staggers, she just, and, and, and of course, the, as luck would have it, the animal ran into the netted fence, you know, and it was sitting there, it was sitting there getting, elect, not electrocuted, but getting shocked over and over again. It, 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 it just magnified the whole problem. So you could tell if they fell into a fence like that or into a pond, you know, it could be devastating, you know, so. Yeah, animal health is probably the best way to to look at it. It is. It's a health issue, and and the way our society is running now, those those are big issues. Yeah. Um, it, this goes back a ways now. I'm sorry to say, but 2007, you had a paper on the the economic benefits of forage improvement in the United States. So, it's my perception, and you certainly should feel free to correct it, but. There, once upon a time, there were far more resources in the land grant and USDA ARS systems for forage breeding, and not so much today. I would agree with that statement wholeheartedly. Yeah, um, and yet the the point can be made for I I, I like to look at the whole interest in regenerative agriculture as, in a sense, coming aware of what we've been interested in in forage agriculture for all along, going back to the the people that you've mentioned as being impactful in your life. Um, So the, the importance of forage improved forage varieties for the U.S. agriculture, and then we could, well, and economy, and then we could expand that and and look overseas to where 
many of the same problems exist, and maybe they're just coming to those problems a couple decades after we did, but we're going to be facing those same issues of soil degradation, soil erosion, um, depletion of, of nutrients. You mentioned the erosion that took place in Kentucky and Tennessee, and in part that was at the end of a century or so of row cropping without adequate fertilizers and without the, the sort of practices that we now employ. Um, so looking forward, um, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about what could we, should we be doing to make sure that there's enough resources available to do this kind of work for the next generation? Yeah, that is really, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, it, it also, uh, these, these problems just don't happen overnight. You know, it, it's, it, it gradually erodes. And uh, and so you just start tracking that erosion maybe 20, 30 years ago. You know, it, uh, I, I just I tell students today, even when I go to the seminars or at, at UGA here that or, or meet with them separately, that I was lucky, too, that I came through a golden era. It was a golden era of funding and, and, a, and a big core group of people involved. I mean, just look in Georgia. I mean, how? I mean, you start talking about guys like Glenn Burton and Wayne Hanna, and, and there's me up here. You know, so you know, just uh, you know, there was a lot of effort going into forage breeding, forage economy. You know, I, uh, for I'm sorry, forage agronomy. Uh, you know, Hubland. There were legendary guys who were well funded and did a lot of good res research you know, in both sides of the, both the animal side and the forage side. But if you track that, if you track that by just number of people starting, say, like 2000, you know, it just, maybe even before then, it just starts tracking downhill. And uh, I mean, a, a good example is we had, we had full-time forage extension agronomists. Now, the forage extension agronomist is expected to run 30% of his time doing research and maybe even has to teach. Well, it's, it's, it's a good use of time, but, but I'm going to tell you, it's, there's not going to get as much out of them for any one of those aspects, research, teaching, or extension, than we used to. So, you know, you give up something to try to get more efficiency, but, uh, and the other thing that's happened in forage breeding is is the biotechnology approach. And, you know, there's no nobody more dangerous than a former evangelist. And and uh, and I'm afraid, yeah, I was an early adopter. I mean, we started doing molecular markers back when Charlie Brummer was here, you know, back in the late 80s, early 90s. And we did we did the first molecular marker map of alfalfa, you know. So you know, and I had great visions that. And when I went to Noble, we the one of the main reasons I went out there is because I said we're going to finally get to apply all this biotechnology, whether it's it's genetic engineering or you know genomic approaches or transgenic approaches. And then late in my career, and I I wish I knew more about it, uh, is this new thing with uh, CRISPR, you know, and gene editing. 
That's the big thing now. But you know what it turned out, though? They, the only thing I learned about biotechnology is both a user and a, a, um, a manager, I, I should say, a, a, you know, somebody that, especially managing budgets. I'm going to tell you, it always costs more. <laughs> I can make that flat statement. <laughs> it's going to cost a heck of a lot of money. And, and, and I think, um, in fact, I wrote a paper recently for my own consumption about, uh, about is, you know, is it worth it? And I use an analogy to active versus passive investment, you know, because I'm in retirement now. So it's really interesting to me how IRAs are. Should you be in a passive index fund or should you be in an active manager? And, and, and really, you know, it boils down to the, to the fact if that analogy holds up that it's the active manager you have to pay. That that is the problem, and uh, you know just what you what you realize is that that now the science providers for biotechnologies, you know they they uh, they bring all the experience, and the the uh, the the investors bring all the money. <laughs> At the end, the investors leave with all the experience, and the, the providers leave with all the money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's sort of yeah, that's a version of yeah. the father telling his son when he left to you know go go get some experience. But but and and, and some of it worked out pretty well. But you know, uh, I mean, I even got involved ourselves when I was at Nova. We we actually have you know got heavily involved in the Harv Extra Alpha, Alpha, you know, the reduced lignin, and then stacking it with Roundup Ready and stuff like that. So. It doesn't mean it can't work. It's just that, and that was really one of the bottom lines of that paper you just you referenced, is that what it did was if you if those things were going to be used, these very expensive processes that had high risk but a high return if you could make it work, uh, especially high margins. You know, um, you were gonna uh, it was going to narrow the field for forages. If you were just working in corn, well, that's so everything's corn. But but in forages, you know, I make a great point every time I talk. When I first came to the University of Georgia, I could potentially have worked on 28 species. I mean, they were all being used in the state. Of course, like I said, the big three were the main ones being used. But but I could have justified any of those, uh, you know, it's in some fashion. So you cannot apply. That stuff is not transferable across those species. And and then with all the patenting and freedom to operate, it it just became it just becomes very difficult. So uh, so I think forage breeding and and forage improvement in general, uh, the forage breeders had had to take that into account, and and they just couldn't have, literally could not afford it. So it was like we're just going to keep driving certain vehicles, and we just can't drive these two hundred thousand dollar Porsches and. You know, we just can't do it. You know, it's not going to be a cost effective. Um, and, and I think one of the challenges and mentioned it back in the breeding and selection conversation was we're producing a crop that has to be converted into a saleable product. Exactly. Indirect. And, it's indirect. You know, yeah. our value is indirect. Yeah. And and so there's a big management black box in there. That's right. And at the end, then, at least in this country, people like to think of themselves as dairymen or cattlemen or whatever. You know, you mentioned that black box. You know, another serendipitous event for me 
was when I was at the University of Florida in my graduate work, I took my forage courses. I had taken one or two at Mississippi State when I was there, but I took two forage courses under Jerry Mott. Now, Mott is a giant, you know, and was a unbelievably interesting guy. And he used to really pick on the breeders or potential breeders, the breeding students in the, in the, in his classes. And, and he would chide us for not, you know, doing what he called early generation testing under animals. He just called it that. And, and his position was outside of those three species, you know, Bermuda, especially where in Florida, where we were outside of Pensacola Bahia grass and, 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 and uh, coastal Bermuda grass, uh, all those species have a problem with persistence, especially grazing persistence. So why don't you take all your populations from the beginning and weed out the ones that are not persistent? Then you can work on things like yield. And But he said, y'all do the reverse. You work on aspects and then you put it out in the pasture and it collapses, you know? So when I came to the University of Georgia and decided to pick alfalfa as a way to solve problems of those three grasses. First person I called was Jerry Mott. And I said, Dr. Mott, what do you think about early generation testing for alfalfa populations to pick the best ones that'll be grazing tolerant? And he said, that's exactly what you need to do. <laughs> and so, you know, so, you know, it's again, a series of serendipitous events. So next, you know, we, we went and we found very, quickly that you can select alfalfa when you expose it to all the harshness of the grazing environment. You could pick plants that gave you very persistent populations under heavy grazing. And uh, alpha graze, of course, was the first thing that came out. And, and I'm telling you, there was a lot of skepticism, uh, you know, from the alfalfa community, uh, as you can imagine. But we had another serendipitous event. We hosted the national alfalfa meetings in Atlanta, Georgia, brought them out to our farms out here and they saw them head up and how persistent these populations were. And, you know, it was amazing, you know, and and the next thing you know, that was, it became more acceptable to look at grazing tolerance. Of course, uh, they then they want to know, well, what about bloat? Can you get bloat? <laughs> next thing you know, you, you're back, you know, it cycles back. But, but I have to admit that the quality and, uh, and, then a lot of people still graze and they're not as afraid to graze as they used to be. But again, it was a management problem. And that's what Mott would stress. It was a management problem we were attacking. And that management problem was how do you get keep persistence in these things? Because I don't care how much they yield. If they're not going to be persistent, they're going to have zero yield, you know, no matter how good a quality or, or yield, high, or how high the yield can be, you know. And as, as so I it's, recall, a, uh, it's another one of those things, but so very fortunate, you know, if you, I mean, I, I'm just a lucky man, you know, besides marrying above myself, I, I, you know, I was influenced by Jerry Mott, Glenn Burton, Carl Hovland, Roy Blazer, Harold Brown. I mean, just go down the list, you know, I mean, when you're around those type of people, Warren Thompson was a big, uh, you know, a big mentor for me. You know what it is, is when people have faith in you or have confidence in you, it brings out your best. You know, that's really what happens is you probably can look on your own. If people have people that had confidence in you brought out your best. 
it, it makes you think, well, I'm not, I'm not the same old guy that, uh, you know, my high school teachers thought I was, <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> thank God. Yeah. Um, somebody sees something in me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, a couple things. One is I, I seem to recall you had to engage some professional consultant when you named your grazing alfalfa <laughs> variety. Well, that was a, that was a really good decision on your part. Well worth it. <laughs> it, <really was. laughs> um, it goes back to married above yourself. You know, I'm sitting around here, man, I just don't know how to name this thing. We really want an impactful name. And she just looked at me as, as my wife, Mary Jean, to make the long story short. She said, well, it's alfalfa and it's grazing taller. How about alpha graze? <laughs> I said, wow. <laughs> Eureka! <laughs> Eureka! Uh, Shazam! Um, That's right. Shazam and, is probably a better word because I did look like Gomer Powell. <laughs> Golly! Um, so the 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 other point is, and I think it's one of the challenges, benefits, inherent differences about forage agriculture, is. It's a system. It has to be collaborative. You have to engage with all these other disciplines and and um because it's not and i oversimplify but if you're going to grow corn what day are you going to plant it by is going to choose what variety you're going to plant and then you're going to fertilize it in a certain way and you're going to do certain operations basically on a calendar and at the end you're going to harvest it and yeah there's more to it than that pete there's far more to it than that with forages. And and some of us were fortunate enough to be around when there were uh, there was a bigger community of scientists involved in forage agriculture and 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 maybe that's something that affects how we look at other things. I think it does, you know, and getting back to that question I kind of got off track there and uh, I know that's the way these things go but uh but, you know, it really was, like I said, I, I get back to that golden era. And, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you, the, and of course, this is uh, what statisticians would say, well, you got one rep and no degrees of freedom for reps. But but I remember going to the meeting, to Southern Pasture Meetings in Tennessee. And the, uh, this would have been in the 80s. Uh, Jerry Mott was still alive, so it was definitely in the 80s. He, he gave a talk. I remember that Glenn Burton gave a talk. I mean, there were 220 attendees. Mm. And that was the peak. I mean, they used to run 100, 150 at each one of those meetings. Now, you're lucky. The last time I went to a Southern Pasture meeting, they were lucky to get 60 or 70 people. Mm-hmm. And and I think it's a direct result. It's not not a direct result of those people. They are very interested and they're good scientists and extension agents and stuff like that. It's the direct thing of how much has been cut back. Uh, that, that to me is a number. Uh, so 30 years, 30, 35 years, we've gone from being able to grab together 200 and something people that are call, that would actually call themselves with, with unabashed, <laughs> you know, just, just call themselves Forage, foragers, forage agronomists, forage breeders, for, forage nutritionists. To where now we're we're lucky to get fifty or sixty, you know. So I, I think that's uh, that's what's happened, and uh, and so when you don't have that core group of people, it gets harder to make 
to make uh, well to make progress for sure. But mm-hmm. but also you cannot you don't have the resources to 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 uh, to in a in a third party situation especially evaluate some of the, the things that are coming out, whether it's a product or whether it's an approach. You know, uh, a whole different way to approach the management. Uh, you have to take people's advice or, you know, uh, whatever or whatever they feel. And so that's that's one of the problems. I I think that for the future is, is how we're going to because, again, it's a complicated, very diverse systems. And so you, what do you do? You narrow down. To one crop like alfalfa and, and 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 people do a lot of work on that and 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 so they get more answers than but you know you take you take a crop like crabgrass and they you know, ask people about them you know and 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 uh there's a lot of holes in what you can tell them you know yeah well, okay, so let's end on an up note um okay, at least I hope so um I think so d- yeah we'll try yeah despite that. <laughs> If, you know, if if we're given the opportunity and the honor to talk to incoming undergraduates or young scientists and it, forage agriculture is still critical and I can make the case for how it's fundamental t- t- to achieving development goals worldwide in the next 29 years, which would yeah. be these people's productive, uh, not productive, professional lifetimes. Um, so what advice could you give someone who is at that stage like you were, where, yeah, I'll be a forage breeder, (laughs) um, maybe, maybe some, um, guidance or, or thoughts to, to help them on their path? I mean, I have to admit that the negatives are, would weigh me down here because, uh, especially if they're clever kids, you know, they're going to say, but what about this? What about the funding? What about positions? Where are the positions? You know, and rightfully so. So I would have a hard time. I'd, I'd have to, I'd have to, uh, I'd have to get on to the fact that uh, that that maybe all the new approaches that are more ecologically based, that forages have always straddled both ecological aspects as well as production aspects, and and I think. I think in the future, that straddling of both of those things are what's going to make it have a have another golden era, hopefully. Because where I mean, where can you go? We work in both worlds, you know. We work in both worlds because the ecological aspects of forages have always been important. That's why we have so much acreage that's covered in grass. It's because we learned that if we don't, we really have horrible erosion. And uh, and and yet it's also on land that's not very suitable for doing other things, you know. So so you can get some production production off of it. So um, I'm hopeful, and I would point that out. I mean, I would point that out to him. It's the only area in agriculture today where you straddle both areas. That's, that you that you actually can can wear both hats and and not be well. There's no doubt you'd be talked down <laughs> from either side, but but uh, but I I think I think it is a uh, one of the strengths of, of, of forage agriculture and uh, forage livestock agriculture. I would say I appreciate that. Um, mm-hmm. My mind goes 
in other directions, and this is a complementary argument to that. It's yeah. only when economies are sufficiently prosperous that we can afford to worry about environmental issues. And well, that that is, uh, I I agree with that wholeheartedly. I I think it's our prosperity that's allowed a lot of things to happen. You know, uh, you, you know, or at least the way people, especially the political class, is is approaching everything now today. Hmm. Uh, if it wasn't for prosperity, we we wouldn't be able to take on a lot of these issues. I think that we do, and uh, but you know, it's uh, it's it's an ever changing world, and you know, it's. Uh, it is what it is. <laughs> well, and and we look at statistics about where you know food production needs to be in you know twenty fifty or the quality of the food, not just the amount, and and what we're learning about the 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 essential role of animal source food in proper human development and function, and um, the how integrated livestock agriculture and cropping agriculture are. It's only in this country, well, and other maybe Western Europe where we've seen this specialization um, to the degree that it exists, but it's still integrated. It's just in different places. Um, oh, I, and I, we have, uh, I'm not plugging Amazon Prime here, but we, you know, during COVID, everybody started streaming things and, and we found Three things that the in in the U, from the UK it was from the BBC I think where this as a historian and two archaeologists went back on three different farms. Hmm. One was a Tudor farm, so in fifteen hundreds, and then one was in the Victorian era, and it was like life on a Victorian farm, life on an Edwardian farm, which was early yeah, early nineteen hundreds, but in all aspects. How, how important animals were, you know, if you have, and even in the rural South, when I, even I overlapped a little bit, my mother definitely did. If you had a cow, a milk cow, chickens, and a, and a, and a few hogs, especially females that would produce litters, I'm telling you, you were in pretty good shape on the protein standpoint. And, and, that, and they, they knew it, and that's why it was so important. So animal agriculture, if you if you think about some of the undeveloped parts of the world, a milk cow and some chickens and a in a in a, a hog can carry them a long way, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it it really can. So I do agree. I I think we've taken for granted in in the way we look at agriculture and meat and milk stuff like that and milk products. We just see the end product and we talk about all the things that are wrong with it, uh, but the the inability to get protein <laughs> and energy is is a real problem for some people yeah and and many other nutrients as well but that's oh yeah that's my yeah, soapbox that, that i won't get up on <laughs> yeah i know and, uh, but you know if you can't fulfill your 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 protein and energy you're not going very far you know in, well, somebody in, uh, said if you're starving you have one problem that's right. That's the only problem you've got. That's exactly right. And I do appreciate what you're doing from that standpoint. I, I, I've always found it fascinating when I get to hear you talk or see what you've written. Uh, but because I think I think you take a, a slant at it that other people, you know, don't. 
keep in mind, you know, it's it's the old thing. But have you thought about this? You know, and I think you do a good job at that. And and that's really what we need to do. But what's the alternative? Or but have you thought about this? Or or but <laughs> have you really studied this? <laughs> do you realize that you're taking somebody else's word for it? That happens a lot. I'm amazed that when I go back to to read source papers, uh, you know, supposed to be the source, how much it's re, you know, it just goes bananas. I mean, it's I, I don't even see what they're saying now is gospel. You know, I, I don't even see it in the source paper. Yeah. Uh, indeed. Yeah. Dr. Bowden, thank you so much for your time. Um, I'm, I'm more than happy to answer any questions, although I feel I, I don't know if I told you this. Um, I spent better part of a week traveling around uh, a colleague driving and um, uh, Don Ball and Gary Lacefield were in the pickup truck and so was I. And it felt like I was back for my oral exam and I hadn't studied enough. Um, so, so with some trepidation, I'll open myself up to any questions you might have for me. Well, tell, tell me, uh, yeah, just for my own information, I, I mentioned, I, I try to keep up with what you're doing. What's, uh, what's going on on the front that you've opened up on, uh, on animals and, and, uh, you know, animal products and, and how, how worthy they are of our, you know, of giving it higher priority than we do and not talking it down all the time. Hmm. Um, sure. Well, I, uh, I recommend, uh, and now I'm going to mess up the title. I think it's A-L-E-P-H. It's a dynamic white paper and it's, um, the ethics of, um, meat production and consumption, something along that line. And I'll post the link. Um, and I'll send you the title. It, it, it is a collaborative effort. There's 30 some odd researchers worldwide who are contributing to this. And the idea is, again, with a white paper, it's more generally accessible and then it's thoroughly linked to all the research behind it. And, and trying to put in one place all this different disciplines work into one place where people can access it. So there's that. I've been um, paying more and more attention to international work, which is clearly documenting the fact of too little animal source food in the diets of far too many people today. Um, and then that leaves me trying to foster a conversation about, so what do you think the evidence is for too much? Where, where do you think that comes from? It, like you say, if you go and you look at the cited paper and it's like, that's not what they said. Or, you know, the, this, this study that was done using this admittedly flawed methodology, they don't talk about that flaw when they make the press release. So we're trying to find ways to work with different people to try to get this information more widely known. There's a couple things that I see coming this year that are concerning. Um, sort of, there's, there's a UN Food Systems Summit, which I see having the potential for great mischief. Um, and, you know, that that's at a whole nother level from what I operate on, but trying to get more and more information out to counter the information that says 
that livestock agriculture inherently harms the environment and we'd all be better off if we ate less and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so there's a couple projects along that line where I'm just trying to increase visibility of forage agriculture, ruminant animal agriculture, as well as on the other side of saying, there's a whole lot of people who are suffering from metabolic illness and, oh, look, some of those can be reversed through a diet that is higher in animal source food, lower in the processed carbohydrate foods. And um, people should just try it for themselves and see what happens. But, you know, that's and that's, you know, I know I'm prolonging this, but uh, that's a um, that's an issue. I, I, you know, kind of picking up the the uh, the mantle there. Um, it's one of the dangers I, I I see of 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 an of emphasis of an agricultural approach where you don't need to do anything. It it you know the problem with agriculture to me in my lifetime has been it's so at least in the United States it's been so productive that you don't have to do anything. Mm. You don't have to do anything. It'll just take care of itself. And that yeah that was kind of a political thing. I remember we had. We had the guy from uh, it was Reagan's science advisor, and you know he he made a big deal about coming in and saying you know there's so many he, he well he well he told a story that when they asked the ag groups what they needed they got hundreds of things position papers from the oat growers you know from the cattlemen from. He said, he said, you'd go into a room and the tables would be groaning under all this paper from all the different ag groups trying to tell them what, what they needed. He said, what did the medical people do? AMA sent us a two-pager. We just need this and this and this, and we need a, so, so many billion dollars. We just put it in the budget. He said, so what did we do for ag? The question became, what did we do last year? We just do it again. That was because... People, like you said, were not starving. There were very few people starving in this country. I mean, we talk about hunger, but man, I mean, we're talking about, you know, back in the day, it was really, truly, you could starve to death. You know? And we, we've completely eliminated that with modern agriculture in this country. But, uh, but you know, so there's a tendency for the decision makers, even back in the Reagan administration, to, to say, well, they're doing fine. <laughs> just just let them go, you know. And and I worry now that that is that complacency is easily attacked with, oh, we don't really need to do anything. Why are we doing anything? Agriculture just do its own thing. We don't even need to have government programs and, you know, to support research or whatever. We can just we just do it, you know, and let God. Like I said, the, the story I told about the farmer and, you know, when God had it, it was it was OK. But. It wasn't as productive. <laughs> yeah, there's not a big market for saw briar, is there? <laughs> That's right. You know what my old friend Warren Thompson called that? He called it the three S's. Sassafras, what did he call it? His uh, sassafras, saw briars, and Simmons. Simmons. <laughs> I thought you were going to say sedge for broom sedge. Sassafras, saw briars, and Simmons. He said that was uh, that was what a lot of cattle got fed in the early days. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and I'll leave you with another. Leave it with one story that I really like. that Glenn Burton told. 
He said when he came to Tifton, Georgia in 1936, he met a guy who told him a story, a cattleman. He said a cattle buyer from New York called a cattle buyer in Georgia and said, I need 200, 800 pound steers. And he said the cattle buyer in Georgia wired him back and said, to fulfill your order, I'm going to have to send you 800, 200 pound steers. <laughs> so we've come a long way of fattening up cattle. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. Yeah, and, yeah. and a lot of that is due to better forages and a lot of that is due to work that you've done as well as thank you for reminding me of all these giants. Um, part of my mission is to make sure that people know all of these people that have been doing this work for generations. It's far too easy for, and you could pick, it's not unique to forage agriculture, but we too often look at whoever's talking about it today and forget all the people that were their academic advisors and their advisors. And that, that academic lineage, I think, is, is worth recognizing and, and at least paying some respect to. Appreciate it, Peter, and I, I really have enjoyed it. I really have, and uh, good luck, and uh, just let me know how things go, and if you need anything else from me, just let me know. Perfect. Thank you okay. so much. Okay, thanks a lot. We'll talk to you later.